Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to see that everybody survived our little snowstorm yesterday. We, uh, we had a Nerf war at the church last night with the young adults, uh, like the college age group in the church, and this, this whole room was like a war zone. We had like stacks of chairs and barriers and everything, but uh, Mike was worried that our car wouldn't be able to get out of the parking lot at the end of the night, <laughs> but we all made it, so it's all good. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited to be up here. I... I learned from last week, remember I I actually mentioned mid-sermon, two lessons that I learned. One, no dangling earrings, because they hit the microphone. And two, bring water. And I brought two bottles of water today. But now, rookie mistake number three, I drank an entire one of those bottles before I got up here during worship. So this will be interesting. No, it's going to be good. Um, I just wanted to share before I get into things. uh, Last week I had mentioned that obedience leads to breakthrough. You know, that breakthrough isn't something that just falls into our laps. It's something that we have to step into. And um, and I had also mentioned before I spoke uh, last Sunday that me getting up and preaching was me taking a step in obedience because it was something that God has been asking me to do for quite some time. And I got to tell you, there was a lot of good things that came out of that. For me personally, I heard a lot of testimonies from people but I, it was interesting, as Pastor was saying, turbulence when he was sharing about that uh, during worship. I had a very turbulent week this week. Like, Sunday was awesome, and even I heard about the testimonies from the prayer truck, and I was just so thankful. But this week was really rough for me. I was just, like, I didn't feel good. I, I literally couldn't focus, and I just genuinely one day was like, I'm under spiritual attack right now because I am taking steps in obedience to what God is calling me to do. And um, one day, I just kind of had a moment where I said, you know what, God, just give me some discernment right now, because I literally feel like I'm being afflicted by, you know, just some spirits. And he told me exactly what spirits to speak against. And just verbally, I just said, in the name of Jesus, spirit of chaos, you have to leave. You can't be here. It wasn't some big, I wasn't screaming or yelling or anything. I just, I just said, in the name of Jesus. And when I got done praying... I was just standing in front of the bathroom mirror in that moment when I got done praying. It was just like calm and peace, everything. It was amazing. Um, but it was, I just wanted to share that because sometimes um, as we do take, tips, take steps in obedience to what God is asking us to do, we will be met with resistance um, because obviously the enemy is, I mean, he's the enemy of our soul. He wants to do everything within his power to keep us from doing the things that God wants us to become and God wants us to be. But we, we still have, just because we're facing some affliction, just because we're having some turbulence along the way, we still have access to everything that we have in our identity in Christ, everything that I talked about last week. And last week, I walked into the sermon. I was so prepared. I was like, I've been working on this sermon for weeks. I am organized. Everything is perfect. I'm so confident. And this week, just because of the week that I had, I was literally just sitting in my office uh, before church this morning, finishing things and making notes. I feel like if you looked at my notes right now, you would question me being up here this morning. Um, But I know that God has asked me to do this, and I'm going to do it. And he has, he, this is his word, it's not mine, the notes might seem chaotic to me, but I, I know that he's the one that's going to carry it all through. Um, so I'm just going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity. Um, I am humbled by this opportunity to speak to your people, to speak your truth and a word that you have given to your church. And I pray that every single word that comes out of my mouth this morning will be nothing but of you. And I pray um, that whatever you have for each of us, I might even be preaching to myself at moments, that we will have hearts that are ready to receive, then that you will minister to us this morning. Amen. So last week, um, as I was talking about our identity in Christ, we, um, we read from Exodus, almost said Moses chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, the story of Moses. In Moses, um, we saw this conversation between him and God where he was lacking in understanding his identity. He didn't know who he was and what he had access to because of the God who created and called him. 
Um, and ultimately, we know that he did say yes, and he did step up in faith, and God did amazing things through him. Uh, but this week, we're going to be looking at the total opposite example, and we're going to see an example in Scripture of um, some young people who they, they did know their identity. They took hold of it and to see the impact of what that had was for them. So we're actually going to be reading from Daniel chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3 to Daniel chapter 3 today. Yeah, any women who are in the Bible study, this will probably be very familiar to you. I was actually studying the book of Daniel before the women started their Bible study, um, and so I decided to join the Bible study, and I'm really excited about it. But a little bit of background info before we start reading some of the scriptures. So in Daniel chapter 1, we see just, you know, history-wise that the people of Israel had been taken captive by the king of Babylon, who was Nebuchadnezzar. And whenever he returned, so he he went to Israel, conquered them, and then when he returned to Babylonia, he told his chief um, assistant to gather from the Israelites anyone who was from the royal family and nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And so they were to find these excellent young men, bring them to Babylon, and they would spend three years training in the palace for to, to be in the king's service. And during those three years, they would be taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, we don't know exactly how many of those young men were taken from Israel, but we do know that there were only four whose actions um, and integrity were enough to have them mentioned in the scripture. And um, three of them are who we're going to talk about today. And for anybody who's ever been to Sunday school, these names will be very familiar to you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yes. But something that a lot of people might not know, something that I didn't know until I was studying this week, was that that's actually, those are not their real names. Um, Those were the names that were given to them by Babylon. So Shadrach's real name was Hananiah, and that name means God has been gracious. And uh, Meshach's real name was Mishael, which is a form of Michael, but it means who is like God. Abednego's real name was Azariah, which means God has helped. And this, like Jehovah, not just God, you know, for us we could say God, but, you know, for them back then it would mean Jehovah has been gracious. Um, Who is like Jehovah? Jehovah has helped. But these new Babylonian names, Shadrach's new name, or as his new name, meant inspired of a coup. Meshach's name meant belonging to Aku, and Abednego meant servant of Nego. Now, Aku and Nego, these were two of many false gods that the Babylonians worshipped. And um, back then, there was, this is actually a thing that God instituted all the way back to Abraham. You know, his name was Abram, which means um, high father. But then, whenever God made the promise to him that he would be the father of many, he changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. And so, um, but we know sometimes God, God does awesome things and he creates these systems that are amazing, but the devil likes to try to sneak in and take them and twist them, just like we talked about last week, how he does that to our identity. So renaming someone at this time was an attempt to change the identity of that person. Um, so these young men were taken, you know, and they, they knew the God that Israel worshipped, and so they brought them to Babylon, they brought them into the palace where they would be completely immersed for three years in all things of Babylon, all of their different religions, astrology, you know, um, the sorcery, the history, the language of the Babylonians, all of that, and then they even told them, you know, your new name is no longer who is like God. Now your name means you belong to Aku. And so if we try to put ourselves into the situations of these young men, you know, to think like if America was conquered and the, the leader of that nation plucked you from your family, and we're talking young, this is like Jordan and Braden's age here, okay? So he plucked you at a very young age from your family, from your people, from your nation, took you to his home country where you now had to serve loyally to that country's government, 
and then they constantly tried to pressure you to give up everything that you were and who you knew that you were before to conform to their ways and their customs all the way down to the point of changing your name so that you literally would forget who you were to become who they wanted you to be. In a real-life example, that's not relatable to us, but I don't know, as, literally as I was saying that, I could see so many parallels about how the world today and how the devil today is doing those things to us. He's trying to do that, you know. He's trying to displace us to get us isolated. And just the culture around us is constantly trying to manipulate us and make us think and believe things that are not true about who we are. To make us forget who we are, who we've been created to be, who we've been called to be. The world is constantly trying to get us to forget that we are children of the Most High. And Satan knows that he's defeated. And so the only tool, his really his greatest tool that he has, is to get us to believe we can't fight back. 1 John 4, 4 says, I am positioned for overwhelming triumph because I am from God and have overcome them. For he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And Satan knows this. I mean, from the very beginning, he knows that God was more powerful because God, when he disobeyed God, he was cast out of heaven, just like that. That wasn't like some big war and God had to fight. It was just like God was like, see ya. You know, like there's no, there's no equal power ba- balance that's going on. Sometimes people think that, you know, in, in the world we live in, that there's this equal force of good and evil that's always fighting, but it's actually more like this. It's, it's not equal. It's not even close. And the devil knows this. And so the hope of the enemy is that if we hear something long enough, that we'll start to believe it. If we start to hear something about ourselves long enough, we will start to believe it. And then once we believe it, we start to give it permission to manifest in our words and our actions and in our entire lives. He wants to convince us that we're not good enough, that we're not ready to give up that one habit yet, that we don't need to be more holy and more Christ-like. We know who Jesus is, and that's enough. Timothy Keller, uh, I want to read a quote from Timothy Keller, one of my favorite preachers. He said, Sin is building your identity, finding your greatest meaning, significance, and security on something besides God. Everyone centers his or her life on something, and whatever that is becomes, by definition and function, A, your God, something you adore and serve with your whole heart, and B, your Savior, something you have to have in order to feel spiritually and emotionally, and emotionally significant and meaningful. So, you know, if we were to look at this in, even in our lives, what are the things we need? Is Jesus the first thing? Is Jesus always the first thing that we need? And in the only thing we need. And I think even for myself, I have moments where that might not be the case, where I, I let go and my flesh kind of steps up and takes control for a minute and I have to, I have to reroute things. And in the past, I've needed drugs, I've needed alcohol, I've needed food, I've needed money, status, men. I've needed other things more than I needed God in order to feel significant. I knew that God was there, I knew that God was an option, but he didn't have my whole heart, and he definitely wasn't my sole source of significance and meaning that gave purpose to my life. So getting back to these three young men who have been taken to Babylon, you know, they're now put into this place where they're, I mean, just the, the distress that they probably went through before even being kind of shoved into Babylon culture and forced to learn Babylon culture. You know, they were taken from their families. Their family back home had been conquered. Like, I mean, that would be really emotional for somebody to go through. And so now they're just a total mess, I would imagine, emotionally. They're maybe scared, you know, doubting things. I don't know. But they're taken, they're put in here. And now, you know, Babylon is saying, here's every like pleasure of the flesh that you could possibly desire and you're in the king's palace now so you can have as much of it as you want anytime that you want 
But before we even get to chapter 3, we see that already Daniel and his three friends, they decide not to defile themselves with the things of Babylon. Despite everything that they had gone through, being taken from their home and their families, being conquered, all of this you know, injustice and pain, they still stood their ground and said, I mean... For some people, and I would even imagine there were a lot of Israelites that were taken along with them who were just like, this is, I guess this is life now. And they accepted it and they just, they conformed and they just joined in with Babylon and they became Babylon. But these three men said, it might seem like our God has abandoned us, but we know that he hasn't. They understood and so they stood firm. So in Daniel chapter 3, and this is, again, this is probably a very familiar story to most of you guys, but um, Nebuchadnezzar decides that he wants to build this giant idol, and um, this idol was a symbol of Babylon's self-sufficiency and power, and it served as a reminder that, like, Babylon was invincible. You know, there's, there's, there's no nation like Babylon, um, and the king sent word out to gather every single important person from Babylon and beyond to come, um, just everybody. Everybody was to come, and they were going to play music, and when the music started to play, everyone was to bow down and worship Babylon, essentially. You know, praise Babylon for our mighty, victorious valor and everything that we are. However, obviously, those three young men um, openly refused to bow down. And up until this point, um, partially in thanks to Daniel's leadership, they, were, they had had favor with the king up until this point. Um, they were placed in positions of authority over, like, the astrologers and the psychics, you know, and the sorcerers of that time. Um, and that made a lot of those people very jealous of them. And so when these three young men would not bow down to this idol, those astrologers, uh, those people you know, they decided, oh, here's our chance. We're going to rat people out or rat them out. And so Nebuchadnezzar hears that they won't bow down. So he calls them to come forward and answer um, for their disobedience to the king's decree. So in Daniel chapter three, verse 14, it says, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So first of all, I think it's interesting. You can sort of see that favor there that I feel like if it had been anyone else, the king would have just been like, they're done, you know, send them off, off with their heads, whatever. But because he, they had that favor with him already, they, he kind of gave him a second chance. You know, he was like, okay, are you sure? I'm gonna, we're going to play the music one more time, and if you bow down, everything's good. But if you don't, um, you're going to be thrown, you're going to be put to death. And I, I, it's so interesting to me, the words that the, the world will use. Um, I can hear them sometimes as they're being spoken, as they're being said, and I can already hear that God is like ready for his rebuttal. Um, So he says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? If you're put to death, what God's going to rescue you then? So this is, that's a pretty big personal crossroads for these, you know, basically teenage boys in this situation um, that they have to make this huge decision. They're, they're given one more chance. So they already stood their ground once. Now they have to do it again. And there's like a very clear threat of death here. And you have to think too that maybe even if Nebuchadnezzar really did like their leadership and appreciate them and he saw value in them, he invited leaders from all the nations to this event. If he didn't follow through on his word, he would look like a wimp, and that would completely go against the whole purpose of raising up the idol, that Babylon is the final authority. So there, there was really, I, I don't think there would be any doubt in anyone's mind that the king was like, I'm serious, you will die if you don't bow down to this idol. Ephesians 4, 22-24 says, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, 
which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So these verses here are talking about we lay aside the old self when we come into a relationship with God, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, that our old self was corrupted with lusts and deceit, but now we are being renewed. And now we have the option to put on the new self, which is made in the likeness of God. That's part of our identity. It's who we've been created to be in our new life in Christ. And these young men are now in a position where they can choose to fall back into that old self, into that old nature, or they can choose once again to stand firm. And I think it's important to remember here, too, that most of us in our time will not come into an instance where we have to choose life or death in order to make a decision to obey God. But sometimes we won't be in ideal situations when we're called to obey God. You know, knowing Jesus isn't a magical formula that makes your life perfect and everything okay all the time, and it's just like smooth sailing from here on out. We, do, we are promised that that is our life to come with eternity, but that's not how it usually happens right here. But knowing our identity in Christ and understanding who our God is and who we are in him gets us through those things. My life is just like anyone else's life, but I have something different now. I have a power that stands behind me, beside me, that goes before me, that lives within me, so that when I face those situations, I have the ability to conquer them because who is, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And so sometimes we have situations where it's not ideal, it's not a great kind of situation, we're not feeling too great about it, but when we feel weak and when we're in situations where the odds are not in our favor, I really feel like those are those chances where God is saying, like, let me show you my faithfulness. If you will trust in me in this moment, if you will say yes in this moment, no matter what, let me show you what I can do. So verse 16, so the, the king has just said, What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. That's bold. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to, live, to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So going back to verse 15, he says, What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You know, they don't just kind of take it in passing. They say, Our God will deliver us from your hand, just straight up. So now they're not just disobeying the king, they're getting kind of lippy. But this is, the, this is so good in verse 18. They say, But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't save us from the flame, we know that he can, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know, we want this to be made crystal clear your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Just total refusal to bow to anything other than God, to place their identity in anything other than God. And as I said before, most of us will never be in a situation where it is literally life or death. But time after time, we still don't take advantage, we don't fully grasp our identity in Christ, who we've been called to be, what we've been given to accomplish, everything that he's asking of us, and we bow to other gods on a daily basis. If our identity is not placed in Christ alone, then anything that seems to present us with an answer in the moment, whenever we need it, will become a god in our life. It'll become an idol. I once heard, I think actually I heard this from my dad when I was in youth group. He used to always say, if you don't stand for something, then you'll fall for anything. But even more than that, you, but you could stand for some things, but they're not God. And those things will always fail. They will come to pass. They will fade away. But there is only one thing we can stand on and stand for that is never changing for the rest of eternity. And before time even existed, he created time. He's outside of time. Sometimes we bow to money, believing that if we had more money, it would protect us, or that it would help us with our troubles, or that it would make us more happy. We bow to a doctor's diagnosis as the final truth, instead of seeking wisdom and trusting Jehovah Rapha, our healer. 
We bow to the God of image any time that we pretend to be something that we aren't in order to gain the approval of man. We bow to the God of status any time we place a higher priority on that fancy car or remodeling the bathroom, buying that bigger, nicer house, trying to get into that special neighborhood more than we do on obeying Christ and seeking what his will is for our life. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but when they're more important to us than Christ is, then that's when it becomes bad. That's when it becomes an idol. We bow down to fear and shame whenever we try to hide and justify our sin because we know that it's not what God wants for our life. So we try to hide it. We try to keep it, you know, hidden. Um, And when we do that, we're submitting to fear. We're submitting to shame. We bow to the God of unforgiveness anytime we choose to hang on to bitterness towards others. Even though Jesus forgave us when we did not deserve it. If there's anyone who never deserved a kind of love, it's us with the love of Christ. And if he forgave us, we should be able to forgive others. And simply by thinking, just thinking in a moment, God's not coming through for me. God's not going to take care in this situation. God's not answering my prayer yet. We are bowing to the God of unbelief. And if we can't even choose God over some of these things, how can we say that in a moment of life and death that we would be willing to stand up and say, you know, I'm going to read it again because it's just so good. We want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. We, we can't let fear and pride and all of these things and selfish desires, whatever, we can't let these things shape who we are and shape our, de- our destiny. We need to step up as a people of God and start you know, walking in faith and taking claim of the portion that God has given us. We have our portion. We talked about that last week, and I'm actually going to talk about it again a little bit. Psalm 23, there's a verse in Psalm 23. I'm sure most people are very familiar with that. It's a very famous psalm. Um, But it says that you make a feast, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. And, you know, whenever we're talking about enemies, we're not talking about people. Scripture, Ephesians um, chapter 6 makes it clear, people are never the enemy. It's always the forces of evil, spiritual things that are going on behind the scenes. So he, God makes a table in the presence of your fear and your anxiety and your shame and your pride. He sets up a celebration feast in the middle of the war, and they all are just sitting out there watching. But some of us are inviting them to come sit at the table with us. We're sitting there in the midst of our battle, and we're having this celebration feast that God has prepared for us, and he is sitting there with us, and we're like, shame and fear, come, why don't you come sit over here? Why are we doing that? Why are we inviting these things back to the table to join us and to walk with us? And why are we choosing to carry them through our lives? So moving on to verse 19. So this is right after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have just openly said, we we refuse to worship your God because we know that he will deliver us from your hand. So verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent And the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And so he followed through. He was not bluffing. They have now been cast into fire. Um, That is so intense that some of the king's own men died in the process. Now, we, most of us would know that the scriptures go on to tell us that while they're in there, the king is able to see into this furnace somehow, and he looks in and he's like, we only threw three guys in there, right? There should only be three people. And his men say, well, yeah. And he said, well, there's a fourth person in there. And the, the Bible describes him as walking around with them. And the king himself describes him as a son of God, as a son of like divine deity, and this is obviously a, a foreshadowing um, of Jesus himself, who's in the fire with them, okay? And um, 
so he's in there with them, and obviously this kind of freaks out the king, and he's like, how are they all standing around in there? This is the kind of fire where they would have been turned to ashes in moments. You know, this would, I would almost imagine that this fire being so hot that burning to death wouldn't even take that long. It would just be so quick. Just the smoke and everything, it would just happen almost instantly. And they're in there walking around. And so obviously he calls for them. He's like, okay, something's going on in there. And so he calls them to come back out. So moving on to uh, verse 26, just a few scriptures down. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors, so all of these important people that he invited to come bow down you know, to Babylon, all these people who he threw them into the fire to prove his point that Babylon could not be defied, they're all here and they're witnessing this event and they're all seeing it. So all of them, all of these people bore witness. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So the first thing that I want to notice is that these men, when they were in the fire, they were walking around, so they were no longer bound. So the only part of these young men that was burned were the ropes that had tied them up. And I believe that God sometimes lets us walk through trials so that he can set us free of things that are binding us that we, we would not let him take care of otherwise unless we were placed in a season or a um, situation where we had to trust him, where we had to confront our doubts or our insecurities or whatever they may be. It's almost, I imagine God just like this really skillful surgeon just doing these really tiny moves, you know, that he knows exactly how we would receive things and how things that are just handed to us, we never tend to appreciate them as much as the things that we kind of, we go through, we have experience with, you know, um, things that we, we had to rely on because we had no other choice. That's when that faith really gets built, you know. And that's kind of the whole thing that I was talking about with breakthrough. If God, anytime we asked for breakthrough, if God was just like, here you go, and just kind of threw it and it fell in our lap, you know, I mean, that doesn't really give God glory as much as if you, you had to walk with him, you had to trust him, you had to be intimately relational with him every day and seeking help to, to change who you are, to give up this habit, to overcome this fear, whatever it might be, than if it had just been handed to us. So the second thing that I want to point out, and this, this, this just stood out to me so much whenever I was studying this a few weeks ago. The last words of verse 27 that say, there was no smell of fire on them. So they went through this blazing furnace, hotter than seven times, I believe hotter than normal furnaces were. This big massive thing that was just filled with flame and smoke and they walked out of it. They didn't even smell like smoke. And as I read that, it stood out to me that very day, and I kept thinking about it and meditating on it. And uh, about a, a, a week or so after I had read that scripture, and God had just, he kind of kept bringing it up to me, and I was sort of like looking deeper into it. I participated through like an online webinar for a sexual violence con- um, conference. And I was watching these, and they had all these different people speaking. Um, and it was, it was an amazing conference from the Billy Graham Center that they put on, but as there was a time of just kind of prayer where they asked everybody to just, you know, it was open for people who were victims of sexual violence to pray and, um, you know, receive a little ministry from healing or it was for some other people to maybe repent of, you know, turning those kind of people away or downplaying what had been done to them, whatever. It was just a time of prayer. And in in that moment, God reminded me that I was... a a victim of a sexual predator when I was 17 years old who had groomed me during a time of depression and total desperation using drugs and alcohol. And, And I forgot that it had happened. How's that for not smelling like smoke? God had brought me from a place, a horrible place and memory and trial in my younger years and he had brought so much healing and so much redemption through it that I, God had to remind me that this horrible thing in my life had happened so that I could, that's, and then that was what he said to me in that moment. He said, you don't smell like smoke from that anymore. (laughs) 
And that's the case for all of us, and that sometimes it might be a process to get rid of that smoke smell, but God will take us through that. You know, there's so many things, just everything that went through, even following that event, you know, I was, I was driven even deeper into depression. I got addicted to drugs. I was addicted to alcohol. You know, I ended up in an abusive relationship. I excluded myself and isolated myself from all my family because of shame. Like all of this, it, just, it literally just got worse and worse and worse and worse from that moment on. And... Those things, when I think about those things now, I don't think of pain. I don't think of shame. I think of the testimony that God has given me and how he has redeemed it. We all, you have the ability, the things that you are struggling with, that you are dealing with, that you are facing, you don't have to continue to smell like smoke. Because Hananiah, Mishael, And Azariah understood who they were and who their God was. They understood that they belonged to him. Their fate was not, their lives were not in the hands of some earthly king, no matter how powerful that king was on earth. They knew that they belonged to the king of kings, the most high God, the sovereign of the universe. And because they knew that, they did not hesitate to refuse to bow down to other idols. It didn't even matter, even when they were faced with death, There was no earthly king. There was no voice in their head. There were no self-doubts. There were no negative friends or bad influences. There were no, you know, doubts from being conquered and kidnapped and taken from Babylon. There was nothing from their past that was catching up to them. They knew they belonged to the Most High, and so they stood firm and they stood their ground. There was nothing that was going to convince them otherwise. They knew even that upon death they were in God's hands. God was waiting for them on the other side. And that's part of something that's so cool about what Jesus did for us on the cross. It says that he stole the keys of sin and death. That death has been conquered. So for us who have a relationship with Jesus now, who live life with him, who serve him, that death is not something we have to fear. For us, death is just a door. We just keep on walking through and we move into our next life. These young men knew who they were. They knew who they belonged to. They knew that they were meant for thrones and not for graves. Now, I want to um, just review briefly from last week. I talked about how God is our portion and how in Deuteronomy, when they talked about the, um, the priests and God was sort of dividing up the land and giving you know, all the t- tribes of Israel their, uh, their inheritance and their portion, um, when he got to the priest, he said, you will not get land or any of the stuff everybody else is getting, but because of your service in the temple, because you will be working so closely with me in the temple, in the tabernacle, I will be your portion, and I will be your inheritance. And that word portion, um, you know, the way that that's used is that we have access to the uh, the perks, essentially, that the priests had. And um, that's because we now, Jesus is now our, our high priest. He was our high priest. He offered that ultimate sacrifice on the cross for our sin. Um, but now we, in him, have become a royal priesthood. So First Peter 2, 5 through 9 says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's obviously referring to Jesus. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So this is referring to people who are choosing not to follow Jesus. So now, verse 9, no, this is for us. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful, marvelous light. So there's two things that we can see here, the two aspects of us being a priesthood of believers. The first thing that we see in these verses is that we are privileged. In verse 9, we are chosen people. We are a holy nation. It literally says that we are God's special possession. 
that the, the creator of the universe, like so big, so powerful, why should he care anything about us, that we are special to him? And in the Old Testament, when it came to being in the presence of God and walking you know, intimately with God, um, the, the, the full, unadulterated presence of Jehovah, only priests were able to enter into some of those later places. You know, you walked into the tabernacle, and the further that you got into it, you know, we got all the way ultimately to the Holy of Holies where the presence of God's, you know, that's where he resided. And um, only priests were allowed in there. But even in the Holy of Holies, there was only one, the most high priest, who was allowed to even go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. And access to his pure, raw, powerful presence, it wasn't available to everyone then because of the sin that separated us from God. But now, thanks to the, resur- the death and resurrection of Christ, thanks to what he did for us on the cross, the Son of God, we, if we have accepted the invitation, you know, if we have accepted his forgiveness, accepted his grace, and we've chosen to follow him and to serve him as the Lord of our life, to walk intimately with our creator, we have access to the presence of God in every moment of every single day. There's no, there's no veil separating us. We don't, we don't have to go through people. We, we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to, um, Your access to communion and intimacy with God, it's not through your pastors. It's not through your small group leader or your ministry leader. It's not through that. You access it in your bedroom on your own with Jesus. You access it in your living room. You access it at Tim Hortons over coffee, in the hospital room, in the shower, in the car, anywhere and anytime because of what Jesus has done for us. What a privilege. And even more than simply being able to enter the secret place, we're able to do it unashamed, with happy hearts. We're able to stand before God because our sin has been taken care of. Jesus took care of it on the cross. There's nothing between us. God has shown a light on everything, and he sees his son. He sees the purity because it's all been paid for. It's all been purchased. So not only do we always have access to God's presence, but we also have access to stand in his presence free of shame, free of guilt, happily, and unafraid. And even more so, but wait, there's more. At the end of this age, when the devil has ultimately been defeated once and for all, he's done, he's gone, God has restored this earth to the new Jerusalem, to its original glory that he created it to be, and you know, we come as God's people to reign with him. It, the scripture says that we'll live and walk with him face to face. You know, I mean, Moses couldn't even do that. He saw, his, he saw God's back or hind parts, whatever that means. But no one has, you know. None of us here have seen. That's why Jesus says, no one can see the Father except through me. But we have a promise that. We have a promise of that. That's a privilege that we have received as a royal priesthood that someday we get to be face-to-face with the living God. And this is especially a privilege for us because we were once a people who had no name, who had no identity, we were without hope, and we were destined for destruction because our sin separated us from God. But because Jesus has done this for us, we are now privileged people. We are a, a holy nation, a, a priesthood. So we are privileged, and two, the other thing we see from those verses in First Peter is that we have a purpose. Our purpose is to offer up spiritual sacrifices and to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So by life and by word, our purpose is to serve God. And I think, um, I'm surprised sometimes, just because of what I have come to know of God, that there are some people, even Christians, who are sort of turned off by this idea that I have to give up everything that I want and I desire so that I can serve someone else for the rest of my life. And to that I would say two things. First of all, let's talk about the privileges that you just gained. All right? If you really understand the gospel, you really understand what we now have access to as a result of what Jesus has done for us, it shouldn't really be that hard for us to want. Sometimes it might be hard to give things up, but at least to have the desire to want to give them up so that we can pursue God and pursue his will will for our lives. 
And the second thing that I would say is that serving God, serving Jesus, is a, it's a paradox. Um, you know, God says he uses the things of the foolish almost to confuse the wise of the world. That in, in the world, we're taught that the more power someone else has, like if you submit to someone else, like you don't have power, you're going to be miserable. It's not, you know, you can't have what you want, whatever. But the more that we surrender to God, the more freedom we have. And it's, it's something that you can't really understand until you start o- obeying him and walking through that process with him and with every single thing. And I got to tell you, as somebody who tries to do this, you know, every day that I can in new ways, more ways than I ever have before, every, every day that I'm alive, I, I'm not perfect. I'm not saying that, but I'm at least trying. There, my life only gets better. The more that I give up that is not of God, the more he shows me, like, this seems great, but I have something greater. This seems like it's helping you right now, or this seems like you want it and that it's making you happy, but I've got something greater. And he's not going to just force it out of us. He's not going to, you know, force us to change. It, it, he, he is who helps us change, but we have to make that decision. You know, even if that initial decision is just saying yes, to obey God, to understand that our identity as a servant of Christ is that we're free. That's what that really means. And First Peter doesn't just say that we're a priesthood of believers, not just simply that, but that we are a royal priesthood. Um, McLaren's exposition of Holy Scripture, this is a commentary that I read while I was studying this week, says... The present royalty of the Christian man is found in his sovereignty over the world. He who despises the world commands it. He is Lord of material things who bends them to highest use, the development of his own nature, and the formation in him of a God-pleasing and Christ-like character. And so the royalty which begins with ruling my own nature goes on to be master of all things around me according to that great saying, the depth of which can be realized only by experience. All things are yours and you are Christ's. A lot of words just said in there. But to break it down, so the first thing in there I said was that he, he who despises the world commands it. And so what we're talking about here, really the th- comparing despising the world to loving it. When you love the world, when you pursue the things of the world as your identity, as finding your purpose and your meaningfulness, you are actually in control of the world. The world has control over you. But the more and more that we despise the world, again, we're not talking about hating people or anything like that, but despising the things that are not of God, the things that are of the world, and the more that we start to love the things that are of God, the more control we have over the things in the world. Does that make sense? So the second thing in here is that we, we have sovereignty in our own lives over material things. So the things of this world, we now have the ability to take things that the devil may have meant for bad and bend them to the highest use. We can take things that the devil meant for bad and we can now use them to glorify God and to use them for good. The development of his own nature, we can, we can conquer ourself. We have the ability to conquer our old self, the, the lust of the flesh, you know, everything within us that we know is not of God, the things that we don't like about ourselves, we have control over them now because of what we've been given in Christ. To the point where we become formed into a God-pleasing and Christ-like character. You can't become... You, you can't gain the character of Christ without Christ himself. That's just not possible. You can't have access to the fruit of the Spirit without the Holy Spirit who comes through Jesus Christ. And that last, uh, that last thing that says, all things are yours and you are Christ, refers to some verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And when it says, you are Christ, everything about us belongs to him, our best things. So he created us, every blessing that he possibly could bestow upon us. You know, it says every good and perfect thing comes from him, from above. And, you know, every good thing that we are able to do and accomplish in this life is done because of his power, of his breath that is within us, and of his strength. Every, every, all of our best things belong to him. And because of the cross, all of our worst things belong to him too. 
Our sins have been laid on him. Every mistake, every weakness, our grief, our sorrow, our affliction, they were all taken by him, they were carried by him, and they were done away with on the cross. So all of our worst things belong to him too. And because we belong to Christ, all things, it says, all things are yours, we have been given all authority on earth, just as Jesus was. We have the ability to conquer the world because of he who is in us. We have the ability, just like I, I had that moment this week, I, I felt God was telling me that there were, was spirits that were afflicting me. I had the authority to tell them to leave. I didn't even have to yell at them. I just needed to say it in Jesus' name, and they were gone. We have authority. These things have been given to us. We have conquered the things in this world. We are, and this is part of our, our royal priesthood that we have been given. Because of our identity in Christ, our adoption into his family, into the family of the Most High King, victory is now part of our DNA. It's literally, we, we've literally changed. You know, we are a new creation. That's not just some like nice metaphor or some mantra that we quote to ourselves. Like, you are new if you are in Christ victories in our DNA. We can overcome the world. We can overcome obstacles. We can overcome the devil. We can overcome our self-doubts. We can overcome our fears, anything. We can control ourselves thanks to the the self-control from the Holy Spirit. And we can conquer literally anything if we take it to God in faith and prayer. If God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Let that sink. In closing, I just want to share a few stories of some examples of people who truly understood their identity in Christ. They understood that they were a royal priesthood, that they had a privilege, and that they had a purpose in him. First, we have Edgar Figueroa. Edgar was raised in a very wealthy family, and as he got older, he had a very nice job. He was rich. His family was very wealthy. Um, His kids say that they remember buying a new pair of tennis shoes almost every week just because they were dirty. Very wealthy. He, upon hearing God calling him to do something to step outside his comfort zone, he gave up his job, his hefty salary, and his luxurious comforts in the rich part of town to move to a poor migrant community nearby. In this community, he stood on the streets and he preached the gospel to people while neighbors threw fruit at him that grew on the trees. His family slept in sleeping bags on the church floor at times because they didn't have a place to live yet. God miraculously provided a house for them, along with the finances and a facility to start a youth center for the immigrants in that area. They have seen, as a result, incredible transformation in their city, a growing church community, and miracles happening on the regular. And the people, these people who most, most of us might not even want to make eye contact with. Some of these people, people want to avoid making eye contact with them if they were to pass them on the street. Those people are understanding that God loves them and values them and he sees them because Edgar was willing to give up the financial security, to give up the comfort, and to do something that God was calling him to do. Just a regular guy. Andy Kroll. Andy was 15 when he was driving a car that was hit by a train leaving him with a broken arm, broken jaw, head injuries, and a paralyzed larynx, meaning he he lost a voice. He lost his voice. 52 years later, he was still feeling the effects of the injuries from that night. He still had health issues. He still struggled physically with things, and his voice never really regained its full strength. So he he was very soft-spoken. It was very difficult to hear him, but he decided because he knew I'm not limited by this physical body. God does not define me by this is just a suit that I'm wearing. What really matters is inside. When I pass through that door into eternity, this isn't going to matter anymore. So he was not limited by that. He knew his his identity. And so he decided with whatever voice that he had, he would use it to speak life into anyone he could come across with, especially people who didn't know Jesus. 
One year ago, Andy received an email from a woman who had been in prison where he had visited once to do ministry. She had been addicted to cocaine and heroin and had been arrested for prostitution. At that time, she was going through withdrawal, and so she, she told Andy, I'm so sorry, I can't stay at this Bible study. Like, I'm just so sick, like, I have to go. And before she went away, he said to her, just in his barely there voice, it's okay, look at me. God will turn your mess into a message. In this letter that she wrote him, she said that she was out of prison. She was three years sober. She regained custody of all of her children. Her marriage had been restored, and she was currently pursuing her master's degree, all because Andy pointed her to Jesus that day. He used his whisper to point her to Jesus. Ansel Grant. This is a man who took a job to pastor a church in a very small community with very little pay, if any pay at times at all. This community was widely known for the amount of drug-related crimes, and drug dealers often hung out right across the street from the church. Ansel knew that God wanted something done, that he wanted to restore this community, and he wanted to bring Jesus to this community. So he started leading a small group of people from his church, and they just walked the streets once a month, and they prayed Over their community, they prayed that God would do something, that he would act in power. They prayed for revival. And they did this for six years. Just once a month, just walking the streets and praying. Six months, like clockwork. Nothing happened. But last year, there was a a shooting, and one member of a gang uh, was shot by the member of another gang. And um, that was sort of the most violent thing that had happened since... um, Ansel got there since that church had been established, and they could have retreated. They could have said, nothing's happening. We haven't seen the answer. You know, he could have bowed down to that idol of unbelief, but he said, we're, we're going to do something different. We're not going to retreat. We're going to hold an open-air service right in the location where the shooting took place, where that young man got murdered. We're going to just stand out in the open, and we're going to tell people about Jesus. At that at that event, at that service, 86 people, including one of the drug lords in the community, came to the service. Several people gave their lives to Jesus that night. At the following men's breakfast, 25 new men came. And to this day, more and more people in that community are coming to their church and coming to their events, and they're giving their lives to Jesus. These are just normal people. These, I literally just went on, Pastor mentioned the Message magazine of Open Bible. These are just regular people in Open Bible. They're not like famous in history, you know, or anything like that. I believe that, you know, they're famous in God's eyes because of their obedience and commitment to him. But they're just normal people. I think of just normal people in my life. I had a science teacher who, he was just a science teacher. He didn't lead a Bible study or anything like that. But he was, if I, I don't think, I'm pretty sure if I had not had him to point me in the right direction at some moments when I was in high school that I wouldn't be standing here right now today. And when I went through my rebellious years and was just completely lost, I had parents and grandparents, just parents and grandparents, who prayed for me every single day for like three years. And again, without prayer, I don't think I would be here today. These are miracles that are happening. These are things that are important. If you think praying for somebody to help them see breakthrough in their life or see a prodigal return to their, to their father, their heavenly father, whatever it might be, these things are a big deal because they matter to God, they matter to the kingdom. Regular people. God, if you look through scriptures, God never chose the person who would have been fit for the job. He always chose somebody who had weakness or, you know, couldn't do this or couldn't do that, but then they were put into that position anyway because he wanted to continually show people that it's by his might, that it's his strength, that it's made perfect in our weakness. These people understood their identity in Christ. And because of that, despite circumstances, besides God calling them to go outside their comfort zone, they still were willing to say yes. And they saw amazing things happen because of it. They are, they are part of the priesthood of believers. They're God's special possession, a royal priesthood, more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors, we are more than. I, I'm going to be honest, I don't even know 
How do you do more than conquer? But we are. We are more than conquerors because we are in Christ. And that is our portion. Let's pray together for a moment. God, we know that your heart is for your people. It's for all people. I pray that we would begin to understand in a new way all that you are because we need to know who you are. We need to know who you are if we're going to know who we are. God, I pray that you would just start to open doors that light bulbs would start to go off. And I pray that in times, even when we feel one way, that we would still have faith and we would declare, we would remind ourselves that we still have hope in you, that we have identity in you, that we are found in you. God, I believe that this morning there is something for every single person in this room that you have one thing that you are asking each and every single person in this room to do. They're all going to be different. They're going to be all over the scale. But I believe that you have something that you want to ask of your people this morning. It could be something that's as simple as prayer. Scientific studies have found that 12 minutes, 12 minutes of daily prayer over eight weeks can change our brains so much. They change our physical makeup so much that it can be measured on a brain scan. You're amazing. Something that might seem as small or not as big of a deal just as to be praying every day means more and can change more than we could possibly imagine. Maybe that's what you're asking us to do today. What are you asking of your people this morning, God? Maybe it's something bigger, something that seems bigger. Like you're asking us to decide that we're going to fight to save a marriage. Or maybe that we need to start getting more involved in serving at our church. Maybe you're asking some of us to get on the prayer truck next month. Finding ways to witness to a coworker, To step up as the head of a family and lead our people to Christ. Not to let church services disciple our family, but to be the discipler of our families. Maybe you're asking us to find someone that we trust in this church to confess our sin that we've been hiding for a really long time. Because when it's brought into the light, only then can you help us take care of it. Some of these things, whether they seem like they're big or whether they seem like they're small, They can feel impossible to us sometimes, but it's important that we know something. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And the formula for starting something new and entering into a new season almost always begins with leaving the old. Leaving is usually an act of obedience, not always a desire of the heart. It's not always something we naturally want to do at first, but it's an act of obedience. It's an act of saying yes God has created us to be a royal priesthood, not a pool of lukewarm believers who don't read our Bibles, who don't pray, and who live our lives as if God is just some side project we can list on our resume of life. What are you asking of your royal priesthood today, Father? Speak to us now. Tell us who we are. Let us agree that we are who you say that we are. Let us agree with what your word says about us. God, I pray that you would just minister to hearts right now. I pray that as we are hearing from you, as you are speaking to us, whatever that one thing might be, that one step, If you feel like God has spoken something to you this morning that he has asked you of one thing, it could be so seemingly small or it could be seemingly big, whatever, it doesn't matter. Every single bit of it is important in your walk with him, in your relationship with him, and in the kingdom. If God has asked you to do something this morning and you are deciding that you are willing to say yes, will you just lift your hand? 
God, we know that we may not feel in this moment that we are able or that we are equipped to do whatever it is that you are asking of us. But we are choosing right now to stand in our identity in you, that we are this new creation, that we can trust you, that you are faithful, that you will never let us down, that you will never take us to a place and leave us there. You've already been there. You've gone before us. You are walking beside us and you are walking behind us. At times you will carry us. But God, right now we are saying, yes, we are choosing to trust. And I know that we know that there are always amazing things on the other side of our obedience. God, I just pray that as we leave this service this morning, as we walk out these doors, that we would walk in you, that we would seek to learn more about who you are in your word, that we would seek you in prayer, and that we will see that your promise to us is that we will see mountains moved that we will see victory in places where there should be no victory, that we will find peace in the middle of the storm, that we will do and accomplish things for you and through you that we never would have thought was possible ever because of how we feel about ourselves or what's been said about us, what's been done to us, that we will not limit ourselves to an earthly point of view, that we will no longer bow down, that we will refuse to bow down to the idols of this world, that we will be steadfast in our commitment to you God that we will trust you trust is built if you never put yourself in a situation where you have to rely on God how will you ever learn how to trust him God I pray that you would just be taking your people to new places as we walk out these doors I pray that even this week uh, that we will hear testimonies as we come back to see each other about the things. I pray that if you felt like God was calling you to do something, tell somebody about it. Speak out in faith, I'm going to do something that God has asked me to do. I'm gonna commit to praying for 12 minutes every day. I'm gonna start reading and studying my Bible. I'm gonna sign up for that thing on the say yes wall that you've been convicting me about for months. I'm gonna go on the prayer truck. I'm going to do the impossible because God has called me to do it. And I know that if he has called me and I say yes, that he will get me through to the other side. I'm going to, if there's anybody here who wants to receive prayer this morning, um, I want the altar to be open too. And I would be happy to pray with you, but I am going to go ahead and close and dismiss for anybody else who, who needs to get going or anything. God, show us who you are. We want more of you. Let the desire of our heart to be more of you as we walk out of these doors. We don't want more of you in our church service. We want more of you every single day. We are privileged to know you, to worship you, to walk with you. God, I pray that each and every person as we leave these doors, as we leave this church, as we go out into the world, that we will serve out God's purposes for us, that we will remember that we are in the world, but we are not of it. Lord, I pray that you would keep everyone safe through the snow that is coming this week, that whatever whatever turbulence may hit, that we will remember that you have set our course that you have laid it before us and that we can trust you no matter what. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. And again, if anybody does want prayer,